I'm sorry, Doctor. We've uh, just discovered that tickets are now on sale for the Los Angeles edition of the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. It's taking place September 28th and 29th, which we believe is a Friday and a Saturday, in Los Angeles. Well, specifically in San Pedro, California, at the Warner Grand Theater. You can see creepy features, weird short films. There's a mall of Cthulhu, author readings, all kinds of Lovecraftian stuff you don't want to miss. Go to hplfilmfestival.com, Doctor. Please. HPpodcraft.com Because we remember pain and the menace of death more vividly than pleasure, and because our feelings towards the beneficent aspects of the unknown have, from the first, been captured and formalised by conventional religious rituals, it has fallen to the lot of the darker and more maleficent side of cosmic mystery to figure chiefly in our popular supernatural folklore. This tendency, too, is naturally enhanced by the fact that uncertainty and danger are always closely allied, thus making any kind of an unknown world a world of peril and evil possibilities. When to this sense of fear and evil, the inevitable fascination of wonder and curiosity is superadded, there is born a composite body of keen emotion and imaginative provocation whose vitality must of necessity endure as long as the human race itself. Children will always be afraid of the dark. Men with minds sensitive to hereditary impulse will always tremble at the thought of the hidden and fathomless worlds of strange life which may pulsate in the gulfs beyond the stars, or press hideously upon our own globe in unholy dimensions which only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. With this foundation, no one need wonder at the existence of a literature of cosmic fear. That was a section from the introduction of H.P. Lovecraft's essay on weird fiction, supernatural horror and literature. You're joining us here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. I am Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And uh, this has been our first month of, of having a premium show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're into our second month right now. It's been a fun month. Uh, we released four shows on our premium feed. Yep. Aside from the, the free one on Supernatural Horror that we did last month. We did two shows on The Repair of Reputations and one on The Yellow Sign, both from the King and Yellow Collection yep. by Robert Chambers. And uh, just last week, we had that quick history lesson with Andrew Lehman of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Yeah, it was great. It was fun talking about all that stuff. Yeah. Man, Andrew really knows his stuff. He really does. <laughs> I learned a few things and... I don't know. It's just kind of an exciting conversation. We're going to do some more type of things like that. I, I think very soon we're planning on getting Anthony Tedesco on here to talk about Lovecraftian games. Yeah, yeah. Some people have been clamoring about that. I've gotten a few emails about people wanting us to do an episode about Lovecraftian video games just because yeah. it's something that's not really talked about. But there's quite a few out there. There are. So we're going to uh, perhaps in the next month uh, talk about that with him. Of course, we're going to cover a few more stories. We're going to talk about that as we move on with the show today. And I uh, just want to remind folks that those subscriptions are still open. It's $6.66 for three months. Mm-hmm. In those three months, you get 12 shows. And, of course, when you subscribe, you also get access to the back catalog. So the shows on The King and Yell that we already did, yep. you can catch up and listen to those. We've gotten great feedback so far on the show. Some folks have written to tell us that they're not subscribing and giving us reasons why. Some of them, it's because they hate PayPal. Yeah, there's a lot of PayPal haters out there. And I guess PayPal has burned some people, you know, once burned, twice 
dead? Something like that. Well, so far it's been working great for us, but we are trying to come up with a solution to get you through the checkout process so you don't have to make a PayPal account. So we're working yeah. on that, and as soon as we know, we'll make an announcement so it'll be easier for people to subscribe who are phobic about PayPal. Although, yeah. it's so far it's been working fine. Yeah, it, well, I mean, this thing is kind of a still an experiment to us, and we're still trying to get the bugs worked out, figure out if this is something that everybody wants, if there's a big enough demand for it, and yeah. uh, right now, it's it's a slow start, so if you if you haven't subscribed to the show, and you think you might like to hear more stuff, please subscribe. We, you know, like I said, two, 222, it's less than a comic book. So if you buy comic books monthly, this is cheaper than that. We understand if it doesn't work out. I mean, We'll have to pull the plug eventually if it doesn't work out. But um, wait, Ch- Chad, are you? Is that a threat? It kind of was a veiled threat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want us to go on, uh, please give us your support. All right. Enough. Enough talking about that. Last time, slowly, oh so slowly, working our way through the introduction to Lovecraft's essay, in which mm-hmm. he asserts so far that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. The oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And because of this literature exploring this emotion, although not necessarily appealing to everybody, is uh, nevertheless a legitimate form of literature written and read by the psychologically sensitive few. And the bit we heard in the beginning just reinforces that idea. Specifically, he talks about in in that opening paragraph how in a world where there is always going to be things that we don't know, there is going to be scary things. And everybody lives in that world. Yeah. We can't know everything. So that unknown element will be scary to us. Children will always be afraid of the dark. I I remember a time, this was one of the most scary things I remember as a kid. I was with my mom at Kmart. (laughs) Oh my God, that's horrifying. Well, hold on. We're at Kmart. And then you know how like clothes have those circular round racks? Oh yeah. Well, I climbed inside there and I thought it'd be funny to hide from my mom for a few seconds, you know, just hilarious. She didn't ask for me or look around for me. And then I came out and she was gone. And then I just remember this unbelievable fear like like every person that was walking around was immediately evil and out to get me mm-hmm. the place was terrifying even though it was brightly lit with its fluorescent lights it was horrible because i didn't know what to do in that circumstance it's like you're supposed to find a police officer and say hey i'm lost or find somebody in charge it's like i don't know how right. to find anybody in charge in kmart you know like <laughs> Uh, there's the cashier ladies, but are they in charge? Is that somebody I should go to? And I just remember this paralyzing because I didn't know what to do. This was an unknown for me. I didn't have a plan yeah. of, of action. And I think that's what Lovecraft's talking about, being lost in Kmart. It is. That's what this essay is really getting towards is what it feels like to be lost in Kmart. <laughs> I had an old roommate who did the same thing. He was going to scare his sister. So he snuck into one of those things and waited a minute. And then he pulled the clothes aside and goes, hey. <laughs> And it was some totally different group of people standing by the clothes. So she imagined some little kid just coming out, hey. <laughs> Lovecraft's purpose with this essay was to describe this genre and how it's developed over time. Yeah. And after that point that we just heard in the introduction, which was once again read by Michael Ford. Yes, my father-in-law. Uh, thank you. From the point after the introduction there, Lovecraft begins to talk about specific works of literature. He's still in introductory mode, so he doesn't get too specific. But he makes a point here where he says that the fear of the unknown is so inherent in the human condition that even authors who generally write other types of fiction find themselves dabbling in it occasionally. It has always existed and always will exist, and no better evidence of its tenacious vigour can be cited than the impulse which now and then drives writers of totally opposite leanings to try their hands at it in isolated tales, 
as if to discharge from their minds certain phantasmal shapes which would otherwise haunt them. Thus Dickens wrote several eerie narratives, Browning the hideous poem Child Roland, Henry James the Turn of the Screw, Dr. Holmes the subtle novel Elsie Venner, F. Marion Crawford the Upper Birth, and a number of other examples, Mrs. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, social worker, The Yellow Wallpaper, whilst the humorist W. W. Jacobs produced that able melodramatic bit called The Monkey's Paw. I'm not sure how many eerie narratives Dickens wrote. A Christmas Carol is pretty scary. It is, yeah. I mean, he kind of became the father of Christmas through a ghost story. Which is really bizarre, but... It is bizarre, yeah. But I did have this paperback when I was a kid, and I still have it. It's called The Frankenstein Reader, and it was one of these anthologies of uh, ghost stories that came out in the 60s. I think I got it in one of these boxes of books that my uncle had given to me. And it had stuff by Robert Louis Stevenson and Ambrose Bierce, H.G. Wells. But there was a Dickens story in there. I've, I've be, I'm a huge Dickens fan now. I, I have Great Expectations, still my favorite book. But the, the story in that collection was actually my first encounter reading Dickens. It was a, a ghost story, a horror story called um, The Trial for Murder. Hmm. I, I don't I don't remember it very well, but I did look online and saw there were places you could, you could read it for free. Hmm. It's a ghost in the courtroom kind of thing. So it might be something we'll cover in the future. Actually, um, The Monkey's Paw was one that uh, Lovecraft brought up, which is kind of a favorite of mine. I think one we should definitely cover on the show. I'd love to. I love that story. Ah. But you know, the, first, the I became aware of that. <laughs> I, used, I used to have this weird thing where I would read novelizations of films mm-hmm. when i was a kid i i don't know my dad still does that he loves them yeah so i mean i read but weird movies i read the novelization of like predator and uh rambo three you know why is that weird <laughs> i don't know i didn't i couldn't go see the movies i guess so that's the reason i read them but huh. I, my the first time that i heard the monkey's paw the story of the monkey's paw was in the book adaptation of the goonies what? Yeah, there's a section where they were in the catacombs and just floating on a raft, and to pass the time, they all told each other stories, and somebody told the story of the monkey's paw. So that was my first exposure. That's always tied up with Goonies to me. Weird. Yeah, no, yeah. I, ne- I never knew that. I, I just remember there is that, um, there's an episode of The Simpsons, isn't there? The Halloween special where they where they do a monkey's paw bit? It's a great story, and, and I definitely want to cover it. Now, we're doing the yellow wallpaper next week. Yes. To kind of tie up our whole yellow 1890s. And the turn of the screw fits nicely into our 1890s period, but probably is a bit long, and 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 people do know that it gets taught quite a lot. What's I'm not I'm not familiar with turn of the screw. It's good. It's Henry James. It's a ghost story. I don't know. It might be something we'd want to do, and it'd be many episodes. But well, it's just sometimes something to consider. I because yeah. I, yeah, I know that I've heard heard of it spoke of before, but I don't really know anything about it. So I thought my I might be a good one. All right. Well, the uh, the Robert Browning references to this 1855 poem he wrote called Child Roland to the Dark tower came oh um, yeah roland that's that roland's the name of the character from stephen king's dark tower series the gunslinger and all oh is it okay yeah. yeah i think that's where that poem title is a reference to a line from king lear mm-hmm. which that line from king lear is is really just nonsense although it is in turn a reference to the fairy tale child roland but the poem that he's make, talking about is the sort of nightmare journey of uh going to the dark tower and i think it's where St- stephen king got that that's yeah time. obviously him must be specifically from that poem but yeah but browning is better known for his dramatic verse he's not really known for his horrors but in this particular example it's it's a nightmare kind of poem the francis crawford story here the upper birth i don't mm-hmm. know 
I couldn't. I, I did. I did some searching around for it, and it was hard to find. I mean, I actually found the story itself, but I didn't yes. have time to read the whole thing. But I couldn't find anything about it. Yeah, I know that he he's got a story called "For the Blood Is the Life," and that is like in every vampire anthology. vampire anthology. Yeah, yeah. If it's got a if it's got the uh, what's the Sheridan Le Fanu, uh old vampire what's story? The, yeah, it's got also about? what's the Carmilla, and that's where it's a a girl. It's sort of a hot kind of vampire lesbian thing yeah where a girl is sickly and she befriends this other girl and she gets really intimate with her i mean it's not obviously sexual or Car- carmilla that's what it's called Car- carmilla or carmilla i don't know if it's pronounced Carmilla. okay yeah if, yeah if it's italian it's spanish it's carmilla if it's italian it's carmilla right the chances are good if you see that story then you might also see for the blood is the life but yes. the upper birth i'm interested in since he mentions it here and you can find it free online yeah. so we should definitely cover that story yeah. So it might be cool in September if we do the yellow wallpaper, the monkey's paw, the upper berth, and then uh, you know I'll look at that Dickens story and see if it's worth it. But maybe we could jump on that as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I'm I want to tackle a lot of these uh, stories now. Lise Verner story. Do you know that one as well? I'm not familiar with it. I just from what I read online, the synopsis. It's some kind of curse of Yig thing almost well kind of it is it's uh maybe that's where lovecraft sort of got that idea from it's a woman gets bitten by a snake who's pregnant and she's got and then she has a baby who's half snake half person <laughs> right as far but as i can tell overtly i don't think it's like a masters of the universe situation or anything like no, that i wish it's like in the evil horde or anything like no, that but i think gosh. it's like she has some kind of symbiotic relationship with snakes like she can kind of control them and everybody dies i think you know it's one of those kind of you know, romantic tragedies. Right. And that was written in the in 1861, that story. Just in that paragraph, a lot of the stuff is going to be exciting to to talk about and cover. Yeah. I'm definitely into checking out The Upper Birth, because I don't know much about it. And The Monkey's Paw, just because it's got such a cool, I love the ending of it and everything. <laughs> yeah. It, it'll be fun to put that together into a show. Um, but this, those were examples of non-genre writers jumping into the genre. Right. But Lovecraft then goes on to make this distinction, he says. This type of fear literature must not be confounded with a type externally similar, but psychologically widely different. The literature of mere physical fear and the mundanely gruesome. Such writing, to be sure, has its place, as has the conventional or even whimsical or humorous ghost story where formalism or the author's knowing wink removes the true sense of the morbidly unnatural. But these things are not the literature of cosmic fear in its purest sense. The true weird tale has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or a sheeted form clanking chains according to rule. A certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplained dread of outer, unknown forces must be present. And there must be a hint expressed with a seriousness and potentiousness becoming its subject of that most terrible conception of the human brain, a malign and particular suspension or defeat of those fixed laws of nature which are our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. Well, you know, I like that Lovecraft is sympathetic to the literature of physical fear. Elements of that type of thing are in his work. Well, yeah, but they're def- it's definitely like icing. It's not even icing on the cake. It's like the little icing flowers on the cake for Lovecraft. Yeah. You don't it, really it, need all of that stuff to be effective as a weird tale, to have that cosmic horror. No, no. And certainly if it, you know, if somebody's committing an act of cannibalism or something like that, it shows up at the very end. It's usually not what the story's about. It's 
his stories are much more about building atmosphere. It's really funny that in a lot of articles, most articles about Lovecraft, as a way of making him recognizable to modern audiences, making that connection, mm-hmm. writers will mention that he influenced blah, 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 and they'll always mention Robert Block, comma, author of Psycho. You know, and then people will go, oh, oh, yeah, that's right, Psycho, the shower scene, I get it, you know. Oh, okay, that's Lovecraft. That's not Lovecraft. <laughs> that's not anything about Lovecraft. You know, I was reading some stuff about Robert Block, which I thought was really interesting. You know, he only lived 35 miles away from where Ed Gein did his murders and made his bodies and stuff. You know, Psycho oh. is based off of the actual account of Ed Gein. Yeah, right. And all it was, all that he heard about it at the time, that he dressed up like his mother or he, made, he used some skin of his mother to put on and then he would kind of act like his mother and stuff. But he didn't actually know any of those things until after the fact of him writing Psycho because they didn't publicize the details as much. And he just kind of elaborated on what little bits he heard and he was surprised or how close or similar it was to the actual real thing that happened. Oh, wow. And Ed Gein didn't actually really kill that many people. I think it was only two or three, but he was a grave robber and he would make things out of out of dead people, out of like lamps uh. and books and things like that. For some reason, less horrifying to me than when he killed people. He started off as a grave robber and then it escalated to murder. It's all pretty... Uh mundanely gruesome <laughs> i think lovecraft's talking about that that stuff is is all within the realm of possibility and yeah. with a weird tale it has to be impossible yeah it's um the shower scene in psycho is exactly what he's talking about here the knife plunging toward the woman and the blood washing down the drain it's both gruesome and you're scared because you're empathizing with the woman you feel physical fear she's going to be murdered by a stranger yeah. But it, as you say, it's something that could happen. In Joshi's introduction, I've been reading his annotated supernatural horror, and he has a yeah. long introduction to it, which is good. It's funny, though, at the end of it, he has some kind of mean things to say about Stephen King. He d- Yeah, he does. Well, I think Stephen King's such a popular author that people in academia, I don't know. You can have whatever opinion about him you want to. I think he's, I like him a lot. But, but he has this interesting thing to say in Dance Macabre, which is his early 80s book that he wrote, which is kind of a parallel essay to this, where he's yeah. trying to talk about his philosophy of of horror and he wrote in there he wrote uh, i recognize terror as the finest emotion and so i will try to terrorize the reader but if i find that i cannot terrify i'll try to horrify and if i find that i cannot horrify i'll go for the gross out i'm not proud mm-hmm. which i think hits on what we're talking about here in a way it's a it's a more simple way to talk about this another way he describes it he says the three types of terror the gross out which is the sight of a severed head tumbling down a flight of stairs It's when the lights go out and something green and slimy splatters against your arm. The horror, the unnatural, spiders the size of bears, the dead waking up and walking around. It's when the lights go out and something with claws grabs you by the arm. And the last and worst one, terror, when you come home and notice everything you own has been taken away and replaced by an exact substitute. It's when the lights go out and you feel something behind you. You hear it. You feel its breath against your ear. But when you turn around, there's nothing there. I think that's a great description of it. Yeah. Particularly, you go home and everything's been taken away and replaced by an exact substitute. That makes no sense. <laughs> Why did this happen? Stephen King calls it terror here, but what mm-hmm. what he's what Lovecraft's talking about it's the same thing. It's terror. It's cosmic horror. It's yeah that thing that you can't make sense out of it, even with something that is as Stephen King says, horrible. If it's if it's horror, if it's a supernatural, like a, a walking dead person. It's still quantifiable. It's still something that you can go, well, physically a human sized and he walks around and I could outrun him or I could close a door. Or I can, you know, there's, there's things yeah. that you can do. There's ways you can adapt to deal with a, a zombie or giant spider, or whatever. But when something comes at you, like it could be something mundane as in 
a, a ball rolls in the room, but then the ball hits the side of the wall and then rolls up the wall and then bounces out of the room and it's gone. Uh, well, I can't deal with that. There's no way to process what just happened. That isn't possible. Mm-hmm. That is horrifying uh, or terrifying as Stephen King says, but it's got that element yeah. of cosmic horror. Y- yeah. That's what Lovecraft is, is trying to say. It's when you just can't deal with it at all. There's you're unequipped. He says it's the suspension of the laws of nature, which I think really nails it. There's a scene in Exorcist 3, which is kind of a goofy movie, but there's parts of it I think are really frightening. Mm-hmm. But there's a scene I remember so well when there's a clock ticking. It's got a pendulum that's swinging, and then the pendulum just stops swinging on the upswing. It goes up and stops. And then everything is still. And it's one of the scariest parts of the movie. Yeah. Simply because a natural thing stopped working. Right. There's like a continuum, too, when you watch a horror film. Sometimes they, they actually go along this terror, horror, gross-out thing. The beginning of the movie, you are usually being terrified. They don't show you anything. You just know that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And then they'll show you the monster. And then it's just horror at that point. Physical fear. Mm-hmm. Then you fight the monster. Then it's a gross-out kind it's of thing. It's a gross-out mov- thing, right? Movies will actually follow this. It's very rare that one sticks to one level of it. But once you, you go to horror, it's hard to move back in the other direction. Once you've gone for the gross-out, you can't really get back to terrifying people that easily. You, you'll see a movie like the Paranormal Activity mm-hmm. movies just work on the terror level for the most part until maybe the very end. It's rare that the movies are successful at, at doing that. Yeah, but that that is it. It's it, it's something happens that is outside natural. I mean, it, the natural law thing doesn't quite work because the zombie doesn't work on natural law and giant spiders don't work in natural law. It I, I really feel like it is, and I'm making an argument with you right now, I really do feel like it is when something happens and you just can't, quantify it you can't control it and you can't deal with it right like right. that is that is the, that's when you hit that point that's when you hit the weird horror cosmic terror <laughs> well yeah when it's unexplainable that's right but not just unexplainable no it's not just un- unexplainable. it's more than that and i think that's what lovecraft's trying to communicate here well yeah a giant spider or a um a walking dead person they don't fit into the laws of nature until you see them and then they're there so they do Exactly. What Lovecraft says is it's the defeat of those fixed laws of nature, which are our only safeguard against chaos mm-hmm. and the demons of unplumbed space. So, it, I mean, he's hitting on something. Just say, yeah, you're right, Chris. You're right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, it, look, as he says right at the beginning, it's fear of the unknown. Once exactly. Once you know what something is, it's not exactly. scary anymore on this level. This is the finest form of fear literature is to terrify. Naturally, we cannot expect all weird tales to conform absolutely to any theoretical model. Creative minds are uneven, and the best of fabrics have their dull spots. Moreover, much of the choicest weird work is unconscious, appearing in memorable fragments scattered through material whose mass effect may be a very different cast. I thought that was cool and pretty forgiving, actually. And it illuminates Lovecraft a bit because he's not dismissing anything based on a level of perfection, which I hope we've done with the show ourselves. When we covered his work, we'd say, you know what, there's... Right. Even in the dumbest Lovecraft story, there'll be a spot that's just pure gold, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Some people are like that. Well, they'll say, well, the whole thing wasn't great, so it all was bad. But Lovecraft is able to say, no, there's there's pieces here and there, even if not great books that might really have a great effect yeah. or come close to, to doing what I like. I mean, a lot of a lot of Lovecraft stories are like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they're they're stupid. You know, you can see the end coming a mile away. Everybody, right. All the characters act like idiots. But 
he'll still manage to convey something that's got a the touch of the outside. Absolutely. And you know, that's just like, I'll listen to a terrible song, but I'll find a nice section in it I like. It made me think about how there was a Christian rock band I, I kind of liked. I thought they were good, but... Wait, who were they? Uh, God, now I can't remember. I think they were called Mortal. They were like <laughs> an industrial uh, rock band, but they were Christians and all of their songs were about God and stuff like that. And it was kind of intolerable. But then I was like, I'm just going to pretend that they're singing about Dagon. And... Uh, <laughs> And it worked for me. I could actually get through it then. I was like, all right, these guys are just cultists. It's awesome. But there, I, also, I was thinking about, can you think of like a film or a book that wasn't horror at all, but had some kind of section that was really terrifying? Yeah. I always think about that boat ride in Willy Wonka. Yes. That's very scary. Um, Pinocchio. Yeah. Do you remember when they, for me, when they turned into donkeys, that freaked me out because that didn't make any sense at all. Like, why is that happening? Yeah. I don't understand why they're turning it. That was really horrifying to me. Do you remember that? uh, Well, pretty much any David Lynch, everything David Lynch has got moments in there where he touches on that weird. He touches on the. Absolutely. The horrifying, terrifying cosmic fear stuff. But I, I remember just in Lost Highway, there was that part where Robert Blake He's kind of death, I guess, sort of mm-hmm. in, the, in the movie. And he he goes up to the main character at a party and says, oh, the phone, it's for you. And then it's him on the phone. Like it's it's, yeah, it's Robert yeah. Blake on the phone, even though he's standing there looking at him and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, man, that was really creepy. That movie is full of horror. There are things in there that make no sense. Just them getting the videotapes on their doorstep all the time of them sleeping. Oh, and just even... Uh, Twin Peaks, throughout Twin Peaks, it is, yeah. it has got the weird in it. I don't know if David Lynch is a Lovecraft fan, but it, he would be because it feels like he is saturated in the weird. Yeah. I, of all filmmakers, I mean, you know, obviously he's very successful for that reason, but he's yeah. able to, whatever those strings are, he pulls them and scares the crap out of me. And <laughs> it's not, he doesn't make horror movies ostensibly, but the stuff that he produces has got the best fear moments in it of, of anything. The, people always talk about the scene of the two guys talking in the Denny's from Mulholland Drive. All right, yeah. Where the guy says he has a dream and there's just a guy hiding behind the dumpster out there. And that's one of the scariest scenes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and then you know why? It's because it's got a great atmosphere, even though it's just two people talking in a, in a diner. Yeah. Atmosphere is the all-important thing. For the final criterion of authenticity is not the dovetailing of a plot, but the creation of a given sensation. We may say, as a general thing, that a weird story whose intent is to teach or produce a social effect, or one in which the horrors are finally explained away by natural means, is not a genuine tale of cosmic fear. But it remains a fact that such narratives often possess, in isolated sections, atmospheric touches which fulfill every condition of true supernatural horror literature. Therefore, we must judge a weird tale not by the author's intent or by the mere mechanics of the plot, but by the emotional level which it attains at its least mundane point. If the proper sensations are excited, such a high spot must be admitted on its own merits as weird literature no matter how prosaically it is later dragged down. The one test of the really weird is simply this, whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread and of contact with unknown spheres and powers, a subtle attitude of awed listening 
as if for the beating of black wings or the scratching of outside shapes and entities on the known universe's utmost rim. And of course, the more completely and unifiedly a story conveys this atmosphere, the better it is as a work of art in the given medium. And that's how he closes out the introduction to supernatural horror and literature. And, you know, my fascination with Lovecraft probably stems from the fact that he was the first author to create this effect for me. I had read a lot of horror fiction before I read Lovecraft. And certainly there are moments of what he's getting at in some of those things. I think about in the beginning of Dracula when, you know, when he looks out the window and Dracula's climbing up the side of the castle. It scared the crap out of me and it didn't make any sense. And so there's like mm-hmm. moments like that in in those kind of books. But that's a, a book that has a definite heroes winning at the end. And mm-hmm. It was when I first started reading Call of Cthulhu or Whisper in Darkness or From Beyond or The Unnameable where you got that sense that there were these outside, unexplainable, insane forces working on our petty, small lives. Yeah, I I feel like that's why Lovecraft is so popular is for all those people that he was the first. He was the first person to inspire that in you and me as well. I can't I, I was just trying to figure out is Lovecraft the first time that I've really experienced weird, the weird, yeah, as Lovecraft describes it. And yeah, it is. I don't, I've never read any of these other things that, that he had, had talked about. And I never, he was my introduction into this whole universe, this whole terrifying, creepy universe and everything else that I've read after him is just a reflection of that. And that's why I think he's one of the greatest authors of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, certainly he's made a decision that this is the aesthetic that he wants to participate in and he really goes for it. And so he, his stories are the most perfect example of this sort of thing, even though you will find it, as he acknowledges here, in all, in all sorts of other uh, stories. It's important that you think of it in these terms, too, because one thing that people will say when they read Lovecraft is, it was interesting, but it wasn't scary. I thought this was supposed to scare me. And I actually, I think I am apt to get a little more weirded out by you telling me that story about Ed Gein than I am by what... So the, the physical fear is actually what will make me look over my shoulder when I'm reading sometimes because you're sure. learning things that might actually happen to you, whereas uh, this is a little more of an intellectual horror. And we've talked... Obviously, we've done this whole show on Lovecraft. We've talked about it a lot. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's it. there's something different about this. It doesn't need to rely on on you being physically threatened while you're reading it or, or scared. Yeah. You know, it's a different type of horror. It's pretty special. And he articulated it well in this introduction. Now, I don't think... We, so we've done two shows on, on this essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature. The rest of this essay is really fascinating, but it does talk about specific works uh, yes. and then give some background on them and then talk about you know why they work and why they don't. And as such, it would be kind of silly for us to cover the rest of the essay because then we would be doing a survey of a survey. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, what we'd like to do is move on and actually now spend more time talking about all of these individual stories and then we're going to bring in lovecraft's commentary on it when we cover those stories on the show exactly so it'll almost be like us doing a podcast and lovecraft will be a third podcaster with us giving his comments and telling anecdotes and jokes so uh i can tell you the next week we're going to cover the yellow wallpaper after that we're going to get into the monkey's paw and the upper berth uh and we'll just keep y'all posted on what the stories are going to be after that don't know what it's going to be on the next free show yeah that's what i said y'all i did say y'all Wow. Y'all is uh, actually, I think more people should use it. It's the second person plural. And in English, we use the same for the first person and the second person. So if I address you, I say you. If I address a group of people, I also say you. But in most languages, those are two different words. So I think we should use y'all. That's my. All right. 
That's my linguist reasoning. For you've doing. changed my mind, and I, I believe you <laughs> You might have changed. I might have changed the world just now. Well, all right. Uh, that's all we've got for this week. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And remember to subscribe over at witchhousemedia.com. want to thank Michael again for doing our reading. Oh, and you've got uh, your Kickstarter, yeah? I want to push my Kickstarter, yes. It's it's going well, but it's it's not over yet. And we still need quite a few people to jump in there and, and support it. It, once again, it is a graphic novel called Transreality. It takes place partially in modern-day Yorkshire, but it also goes off into the reaches of space and, and the distant future where uh, the human mind becomes digitized and can be downloaded, can be altered, put in different bodies, split, reintegrated, and it's exploring this world where humans do these kind of things on a daily basis. I can't wait to read it, so please go to the Kickstarter site that uh, Chris has there and yep. donate. Bring Bring us over the uh, the threshold because we want to get that in everybody's hand. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com